All right. Uh, so this is Cal, and I'm joined by uh, Jason and Peter Hyatt. Um, uh, people who listen to me or Jason know who we are, which is uh, we're, we're a couple of nobodies. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Uh, Hyatt is um, a, a pastor from Colorado. Um, are, are you still Presbyterian or are you former Presbyterian at, at this point? What's, well, what's former Presbyterian. Yeah, so I was ordained the Presbyterian Church USA, and then in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and now I'm just ordained by our local congregation. Understood. So yeah, uh, Peter Hyatt is, uh, and you can give as much or as little introduction about yourself as you want to as well. Um, uh, I'm a huge fan um, of of Peter Hyatt as well as Jason, um, but really, well, like when I think of like really interesting. Uh, unique um, expositors of the gospel. I think of George MacDonald, and then I, I nowadays I think of Peter Hyatt. Like um, <laughs> uh, the 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 Romans sermons have been profound. They they've just actually totally destroyed uh, my understanding of what I thought Christianity and the gospel are, and then just they're sort of been rebuilding it. But there's a lot of stuff actually. So here, here's the deal is actually I have lots of questions because I could actually talk to your ear off. Um, the issue is that um, I the way that Jason thinks about things is quite different than I do. It might be a little closer to the way that you do, which is um, Jason has is, is very proficient in terms of the symbolic world, the symbolic language uh, of scripture, the symbolic um, imagination. And I, I, I know that you are as well. And that's kind of what brings this kind of originality and Knight's move factor to the way that you you understand and explain things. So I, I really want to see Jason, even though he's a little less familiar with you, I want to see how he interacts uh, with your ideas and, and what questions he would want to ask. I have a number of questions that are somewhat unrelated to each other. And so if I were to just go down the line, it would be a little disjointed anyway. I will try to find opportunities to um, ask them as they arise. But um, so generally my focus, my interest in this, in this, in this uh, interview would be to, to see uh, how you and Jason interact and also for me to find out more about some of your views and, and the process whereby you came to, to have them. Um, and I think maybe a good starting point would be Genesis, because um, J I told Jason a little bit about how you actually conceptualize Genesis, uh, the two accounts in Genesis and their relation in time and eternity, uh, insofar as that can be understood, to the rest of the Bible. Um, and and I, I don't fully understand how you understand that. And uh, Jason even less, but his his uh, his interest was really piqued. So we wanted to maybe start at the beginning, start with Genesis, and and if you don't mind giving us a, a thumbnail sketch of how you think um, Genesis works, specifically those two accounts, how they relate to each other, how they relate to time and the rest of Scripture, and and then tell us about like the the process um, whereby you you actually came to this somewhat different um uh understanding of genesis yeah sure um should i start uh 
So you start with the process first and then talk about what's there. So, so maybe this, hopefully this isn't too much of a jumbled mess and then you can clarify if you want, but uh, I guess the way I saw these things was uh, the convergence of several different factors. Um, one of them was that I was just a geology major in college, so just loved science and always was just kind of a bit distraught over the arguments between, you know, geology and sort of a lot of my evangelical Christian community about the age of the earth. And so I'd always ask, and I was always embarrassed by the first few chapters of Genesis because it just seemed nuts to me. Um, so I had that going on. And then I was a pastor preaching expository sermons through scripture. And I kept coming across uh, verses that talked about God redeeming all things. And over time, I just started saying those verses without explaining them away, and I was starting to get in trouble. Uh, another thing maybe that was part of the convergence for me was praying with some people working through weird spiritual, even demonic, satanic stuff, and just watching the amazing things that uh, Jesus would do that just kind of didn't fit in the old paradigm. So I started getting in some trouble at my church for preaching that God would make all things new because of what he says in the revelation and my understanding of space and time. Oh, that's another part of it. Uh, just kind of modern physics and new understandings of space and time, I think now match the biblical view in kind of a remarkable way. So all of that together, um, I started getting into some trouble and I thought, well, I'll just preach Genesis again because I had preached it before and talked about different ways of reconciling at things. But I got back into it. Um, and when I got back into it, I had read a book on the age of the earth and um, as, how, how related to Genesis by a guy near named Gerald Schroeder, who's a physicist. And he just made the interesting argument, and this isn't the key. This is kind of what I think sort of unlocked it for me. He made the argument that if you look at the age of the of the universe from the standpoint of the Earth, it appears to be about thirteen point five or whatever it is billion years old. But if you were to look at it from the standpoint of quark confinement, that's what he calls it when matter first coalesces and after the big bang we just did all these calculations having to do with background radiation and things and he said well from that standpoint if you were looking at the universe from that standpoint um then the universe would be about maybe six days old so that just does it's just a fascinating discussion because i realized yeah we're arguing about the age of the earth and space and time are are relative i mean it's that's not even a, a debated issue anymore in in physics um, and so I need to go back to Genesis and not be bound by um, kind of antiquated views of space and time when I look at the text. And when you look at Genesis chapter one, well, it's utterly fascinating. It's real clear just from the language in the first two chapters that day doesn't mean day. It's used in like three different ways in the first two chapters. And when you go through the days, when you get to the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, and remember chapter divisions are added later, um, 
there's this remarkable thing that happens on on day seven and that is that everything is good and it is finished and it's repeated several times so man is made in god's image and then you get to chapter two and you know the interpreters for a long time and i think this has a lot to do with kind of the an enlightenment view of space and time they said well this is a second story because well, look all the details are different but if you just take if you just take scripture at its word it says in the day that the um, no bush was in the field or whatever then god took dust of the earth and formed adam well if you just take the if you if you drop your space-time paradigm just take the text at its at its face well then the second chapter is back in the third day possibly the sixth day and the seventh day hasn't happened yet well that's utterly um well that's wonderful because it, the schroeder's thing kind of helps you with some of the science or whatever and all the people stress about that stuff but the really big difference is thinking that way changes your view of the theology of scripture and later on i found out that this was the way some of the uh, early church thought and orthodox jews still talk that way that we're coming upon this seventh age or whatever and people try to put it into space-time frameworks and get all frustrated but if you just take the text at its word it changes the narrative of um, scripture um, in that we're still living in the sixth day of creation which has an amazing implication and that is that um the thing that's wrong with jason and cal and peter is they're not finished it's not that they were finished and then they screwed everything up with this bizarre thing we talk about called free will and then god you know says oh what am i going to do i know i'll kill jesus to feel better about cal and jason and peter but instead the story of the fall and redemption is part uh, is is part of the creation story so uh, the doctrine of salvation or the atonement all of that is part of what god does on the sixth day well once you once you kind of see that then it just shows up through all of scripture and you know the bible is just huge about um, the number seven, and you're going to rest on on the seventh day. And then it also will talk at, in places in the Old Testament about an eighth day, and Jesus rises on the eighth day. But to the Jewish mind, that was like a continual seventh day, like an eternal Sabbath. So Sabbath rest, all that stuff is really important. And it, it ties into the thing that got me in trouble, because on the seventh day, there's no place for a thing called hell. Uh, that, that, you know, and whenever you use the word hell, you have to clarify what you mean, because we, you know, the Bible uses several different words that we all translate with the English word hell, but, but there's an every, but it's what Paul, the new Testament clearly says that God is all in all. He's filled all things. Everything's perfect. Everything's good. And this, and in the seventh day, time does not operate the same way. So, you know, scripture will talk about, um, ages and in the new testament uses the word i own and then there's an adjective from my own ionios which usually gets translated eternal but i think most of the time it means of the age to come but the age to come is different than the ages of this world and it's just so cool because this shows up all over scripture and explains all these weird verses that 
ironically, evangelical Bible thumping Christians explain away. They go, well, that's not common sense. How can, you know, how could the lamb be slain from the foundation of the world? Or how, how could, uh, you know, before Abraham was, I am. How could you say that, Jesus? That's some kind of poetic language. So the what is so ironic to me is it allows you to take the Bible for lack of a better world word literally. So literal is a hard word because we tend to think of it as according to our understanding of space and time. Well, the understanding of space and time in scripture is different than our common sense understanding of space and time. But if by literal you mean take the Bible at what the auth the author's intent was, well then everything fits together in a remarkable new way. So real quick, let me summarize then the big thoughts that come out of that is kind of, and I've, and I've written a two books on this. The first is the history of time and the Genesis of you. And the second is God and his body, which had originally been God and his sexy body, but we changed the title because we thought it stressed people out. And then I want to write a third book called, the tree in the middle of the garden. And I've talked about a lot that about that a lot in the, the Roman series. But the first book uh, has to do primarily with the first chapter. And it's the big idea that God is still making us in his image. And the wild thing is that we are, we can be finished in the seventh day because it's not part of chronological time. And yet in chronological time, we are witnessing our own creation, which is a fascinating topic because what can we do according to the New Testament? It appears that really the only thing we can do is observe and observe our creation, observe God doing something in us. And then it turns out we can do everything once we have observed this. And then the second book is about God making Adam male and female. And this is something we miss because we're all stressed about our sexuality. But in scripture, um, you know, Jesus is, uh, he's the incarnation of Yahweh who wants to marry Israel. He calls Israel his bride, and then we're the bride of Christ. And uh, how we relate uh, to Jesus has all this stuff to do with sexuality. Um, and the second chapter describes is begins to describe of how god creates adam or humanity and there's a thing that's missing there's a thing that's not good even before the fall and the thing that's not good is that adam doesn't recognize his helper his azer in hebrew and that's when god makes adam male and female and starts telling this story and and we think it's just about husbands and wives or whatever and we miss the really deep truth that scripture is saying no god is saying no i'm your azer i'm your helper and now you need i'm going to build this thing in you called faith or or trust so the problem with adam even before the fall is that adam doesn't trust love because God is love and God is with him. And so he makes Adam male and female, and he begins to tell the story of redemption. Well, the the third book I, I want to pull together is that I think the cross is related in these wonderful ways to those two trees in the garden. So the garden keeps showing up throughout scripture. And in Hebrew and in Greek, there's a word in each of those languages that means both like timber or tree and over and over again scripture talks about jesus being 
crucified on a timber or tree. So I think from the very start, the Bible is saying, look, the story of atonement, how Adam, that is humanity, because Adam means humanity, how humanity relates to this tree in the middle of the garden is has to do with the story of God making in a, us in his image. And the problem with Adam before the fall is he didn't trust love. He didn't, he didn't recognize love. So through the story of redemption, which we're all participating in, God gives us a knowledge of the good and the evil. And lo and behold, the good is him. And the good is also life. And how we relate to God, how we relate to the good or the life can either be sinful and broken. We can take it as a possession, which is in rather graphic terms to use God as an object or rape God, or we can surrender to God and receive the gift by grace. So we're saved by grace through faith, and it's the grace exhibited on that tree that creates faith in Adam. And lo and behold, according to uh, Paul, the book of Hebrews, Jesus, uh, that tree, or Jesus on that tree, is the edge of time and eternity. Paul says it's the end of the ions. So coming to grips or, or being encountered by the one who suffers and dies for me on the tree is the doorway to Ionios life or the life of the age to come. Well, so I guess what I was saying about Genesis is it's all right there in the first three chapters. In fact, the first chapter, I think, is a summary of the history of all of space and time. So the implications, I think it has a lot of implications for like theories of the atonement. And I, and I think it's the way the early church fathers, particularly guys like Irenaeus, thought. I'm not a historical theologian, just read bits and pieces here and there. But um, ironically, it, it's symbolism, and yet it's also saying, I think the symbols are more real than the reality that we're experiencing now. So anyway, those are, those are kind of the basic ideas. Before you react to that, Jason, I wanted to just touch on, you know, what, <clears throat> what, what you already said about this view getting into the relationship between time and eternity, which like, first of all, who can actually fathom that? No one, but, you know, sort of relatedly, you know, when you're talking about the seven days that made me think of your, your kind of new age, for lack of a better term, theology, which, which it is a theology, and how they're always understanding things in terms of seven slash eight note scales octaves they they see that pattern everywhere like I, I suppose the rainbow is one as well and the seven days of the week for whatever reason they they map onto that it's because it, it, it's a notion of i suppose eternity is not a line it's not linear nor is it a circle it's not stasis it's a spiral it has both elements it has both change and stasis in a way that is very difficult to understand um <clears throat> and so it's about like sort of ending back up where you were but uh realizing it for the first time or, or seeing yeah. it for the first time like t.s Eliot said so we're right. going back to paradise we're going back to the garden yeah right this, this day you'll be with me in paradise and um uh so 
we have this this time eternity dynamic going on and um you see that for example in judaism there's a notion of like pre-existence and in some sense you consent to your existence and you choose it before mormonism is a little bit like that too um and i when i say judaism judaism is very it's not monolithic uh, there's many different understandings but some sort of kabbalistic understandings i think involve a sort of pre-existence origin believed in one but that's not been the christian mainstream now what i don't like about certain pre-existence understandings is the way that it's like first there was eternity and in other words that's the pre part and then there's linear time which yeah. is like essentially linear because it's like first eternity then linear time presupposing that linear time is is the underlying grammar and then it's like eternity no longer transcends linear time but it's the opposite linear time is the ultimate it transcends eternity to me that's wrong it can't quite be like that um the weird way in which we pre-exist ourselves is like it's 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 also it's simultaneous pre and post existence, which is, yeah. in other words, don't understand. Like for me, I would shy away from looking at it purely as pre existence. Like there's something here that it's very difficult to understand because eternity is now, which means eternity isn't isn't post existence any more than it is pre existence. It's now, and it involves both the end and the beginning. And and in your um, <clears throat> discussion of Jesus and Mises, which my friends always laugh at me whenever I bring it up, um, but uh, in your discussion, it, it's it's clear to me how when when one inhabits one's true self, which is which is Christ, one is in eternity. God's view is only of eternity, um, and um, God's view is only of, of of eternity. And so, in some sense, his finished work exists immediately before him. And um, and then there's a paradox where if it's if it's if it's already done and it is finished, how come that's not me? But it's like and it's true that it's not Mises when I'm in Mises, when I'm in the self that believes I save myself and I justify myself and I create myself. It's very interesting how also in your thought, creation is like I want to say creation is like the derivative of salvation. If you take the derivative of salvation, it's really just creation. Um, and, um, so create self-creation and self-justification are actually profoundly related to each other. When you're, when you're in this, when you're in the self that believes itself to, um, its own creator and, and, and justifier, uh, then you are not in eternity, but when you are in your true self, there's this weird way in which your will so overlaps with with God's self that it's like you can't see where God ends and you begin you're yeah. only seeing unity God is not like some guy over here while you're over here God is God is over here and you're over here but then God's also all the way between you and God so that you plus God equals God um uh, and 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 to to be in your true self is is to be seeing the unity in God and in, in in everything endlessly um, and that's sort of what eternity is in the nature of. Um, eternity really is now in the sense that when you try to measure the present, you can only measure it as what it isn't, namely the past. The real present, it is baffling. It cannot be durated. Um, it, and and the, I, I feel like really 
our experience of time is not of time. It's really of timelessness when you attend to it. And there's some mystery, some, some mystery is there where eternity is, is now. And I do feel like your, your work touches on that to me in, in ways that are extremely interesting. Um, so I kind of wanted to flag that. Um, <laughs> well, that's great. So yeah, that was amazing what you just said. So, so that, yes. Um, but you know, you kind of, you hit a wall at a certain point when you're talking about eternity because our brains are stuck in space and time, right? And what you said, I think so many philosophers and theologians say that somehow um, whatever we mean by freedom, if we mean that in the best possible sense of the word, is something that has to happen in the now. And now is the point where eternity touches time. And I think the, the person that maybe talks about it the best in terms of theologians is Karl Barth. And he says some things about time that to me, that they sound a lot like what you were just saying, Kalia. Um, and in the, and in church history down through the ages, because people had a hard time submitting to that. There, there've been a, there's been a whole lot of misunderstanding and pain. So I think it was the fifth ecumenical council or whatever that, uh, declared an anathema on origin, and that's really debatable historically, but it had to do with that idea of pre-existence of souls. But with what you just said, you rightly pointed out, there is no such thing as pre, pre-existence or post-existence in this paradigm, because whenever you use a preposition, you're assuming space and time, right? So that's why I, I like to use that picture in sermons where the timeline exists in this bigger thing called eternity. And that's the only way I can understand these verses in scripture that say things like Jesus is the beginning and uh, the end. And, um, you know, before Abraham was, I am, and how eternity somehow enters times. But when you get down to describing the details of it, the mind bumps into all these paradoxes. And yet, this is fascinating, we all dream about it. So the reason we like time travel in movies is there's something in us that says we should not be slaves of time. There, we Time should somehow be a servant to us. And and then, and then the, the nature of that reality uh, from maybe one of the best, I don't know if, the, if this is, a, I don't know how much this is analogy, how much this is reality, but Paul's language that we're all waking up. And I think this stresses Christians out because Christians see themselves in contip, con, um, in some sort of um, competition with Eastern philosophy. So the moment and something with, sounds and with Gnosticism, like and with Gnosticism, yeah. but, but, but astute readers of Paul have always sensed some kind of weird other Gnosticism underlying what he's saying, a Christian Gnosticism. We can't entirely throw it away because there's something in that paradigm that's actually, I think, central to understanding Paul. We, we we look at our ourself as in a, a mirror, and you and you see God, or you see Christ. Um, it, you know, th- this is this. There's something tremendous going on there um, yeah. to do with the image of God and, and one's true self, treasures hidden earthen vessels. Um, and it does sound a little bit gnostic, uh, for lack of a better term, just because he's he's talking or a mysterian. He's talking about you know there are other mysteries that I've seen and that I could tell you, but that you're not ready for. 
Right, um, so right. there's something there. Now, is it is it straight up like New Age Gnosticism? Yeah, pre-existence of the souls. It all happened on this linear timeline that yeah. you can actually understand. If you have the secret knowledge that we have, that's not really anything. It's it's false light. But but the, the true light is also beyond our, our understanding. It is not actually perspicuous. I think that's kind of a big lie that the Bible is actually just it's all ready to hand. No, it 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 go it it goes to the edge of your understanding and then it and it it's under it's beyond it as well. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like the Christian, as it were, Gnosticism of Paul is is what is what I think your understanding really directly targets. And I think that's super helpful. Um because because certainly something like that must be operative. Yeah. So you did you say the word perspective? what was that word you used perspicative or oh, something pers perspicuous or perspicuity Pers like yeah i don't even know what that means <laughs> yeah it's, it's really unfortunate it's a it's a it's a heterological descriptor it's a word that is not true of itself big is a small word perspicuous means easy to understand it is a word that most people have to look up but yeah. the, doc the notion or the understanding of the perspicuity of scripture is you know uh operative for a lot of people they talked about you know, because it's a key part of their theology. God gave us everything we need to understand in the Bible, and it's and it's oh, it's all just right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're saved by your ideas. So for the theology to work, you have the ideas have to be accessible. Yeah, um, yeah. And and if they're, but the truth is, of course, they're not. They're not really that accessible. Well, which is, yeah, it's also really unbiblical. So I was just thinking about. Um, Gosh, I let me see if I can find this verse real quick. But uh, what's well, where Paul says, if you think you know something, you know nothing. And and then he says something like, but if you love, you have been known, which all goes back to kind of that that relationship with the tree, that if the thing hanging on the tree is the knowledge of good and evil, if if I take it and try to turn it into a thing, make it, I guess in those words to make it perspicuous or well, that was a, I got to remember that word but if I try to make my wife per perspicuous I I dissect her I cut her up and kill her and turn her into chemicals um, but if I relate to her in truth then she's there's always something of a of a mystery there because God himself indwells her in this uh, fascinating way so yeah the and the word Gnosticism is one of those dirty words you, you know so I there are words like universalism, Gnosticism, evangelical now is another one of those words that they're fighting words and people have a hard time defining what they mean by them. And so I, you know, so I, when people say, oh, that's new age or that's Gnostic or whatever, I try to not listen too much because was, I'm going, I don't even know what that means. We become very concerned and agitated to police boundaries where that actually we don't even know where they are. Right that's, that's right. that's a kind of sign of almost the scatterer at work. Yeah. It's like I don't know what we're fighting about but we're fighting. Yeah. Uh, and uh but but um uh, uh, uh Jason did you did you want to talk about where did you understand Genesis in the way that cuz I mean for me I always understood it as look no it was like it was 7 days and however long that is it's not 24 hour periods necessarily they're ages and then after that then everything happens. I had not had the futurist understanding of Genesis. I had a fully, shall we say, preterist understanding. Um, uh, what about you, Jason? Was that how you already read it? 
Uh, well, okay. So first of all, I want to say Cal talked me up. So now I got to feel like I, I need to say something very profound. Um, I really struggle. Like even when you guys were talking about letting your time, like I feel like I'm. there's a big part of me that's still stuck in that. So honestly, like everything I come across, I feel like I'm scratching and clawing for like uh, symbolism well, and revelation and stuff like that. And sometimes the it thing clicks, is, Jason, but... Jason is actually very intuitive, but he can't always explain himself. And I'm sort of the opposite where I can explain myself pretty clearly, but I don't always have the the integrative faculty that Jason has to connect ideas because he he does things like really intuitively that, that took me. <clears throat> A long, a long period of logic chopping to actually even just approach. So he's talking himself down, but but yeah, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have a meeting of the minds here. Sorry to interrupt you right. again. No, that's fine. I think when I first read it, because I was brought up the same way, like six days, literal six days, um, everything. And so when I first read it, I just uh I mean, I don't know what I thought to think necessarily. Um uh, but it like you said, immediately it starts to kind of fall apart when you see it that way, because the day doesn't necessarily mean a day, because he doesn't create sun and earth type of day till like the fourth day or something. Um, but as for the two chapters, I never, I don't think, and this just might be my shallow form of reading where it just, uh, I'm like kind of glossing over something in the first time, but I never thought they were contradictory account accounts. So it kind of surprised me when I first heard that, that people had traditionally seen them, because I just thought, hey, he said this this first thing, and then he's going into more detail in the second chapter, like kind of zo zooming in or something like that. Um, yeah, and, I, and that's not really important. I, I mean, I think a lot of critical scholars have looked at it as two different stories, and sort of the evangelical community always looked at it as one. But the thing that's different is that in that evangelical community that, you know, I was a part of that, well, I, and I think I, depending on what you mean by that word, I think I'm still a part of it. The idea is that time, like time begins with Genesis 1-1, and then it just continues. So on the day that that uh, God makes Adam, well, if you just read the story at face value, that's got to be some day after day seven. And yet the story itself contradicts that, because it already told us that God, Adam got made on the sixth day, and he's finished by the seventh day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I like what you guys are saying, and the the idea of it being outside of space and time is incredibly profound. It is hard to grasp with your mind. It's just something I think everybody kind of intuitively knows, but you can't actually, uh, or at least hopes for or something. Because like you said, it's uh, when you're talking about man, we're still approaching the seventh day of where man will be in God's image. Like my my head always goes to Pinocchio when I think of that. Like just a Disney movie. It's like. You make man, and then he's just this little thing of matter, this clay form, this wooden wooden boy, and he's trying his whole, I mean, the whole story of Pinocchio, he kind of goes through the fall, and the whole story is dad's kind of in the background looking for him, and then finally at the end, he has this death and resurrection, like he finds his dad in, basically in hell, I guess you might say, in the belly of the whale, the belly of the beast, and then uh, is reborn by the spirit into, <laughs> into his father's image. And so it's like, uh, well, that's exactly right. So the the kind of the point is that Adam at, at the start of chapter right after right after he's made in chapter two is like 
the wooden boy. He doesn't. He's uh, he's incapable of choosing the good in freedom. Is how like Karl Barth would say it. I, I think Scripture calls that love, and then he has to go through the story of redemption. Um, in order to learn what love is and to choose the good and freedom. And the story of Adam, this is important to say, there's so much <laughs> in the picture that I, that I forget to mention, is Adam, I think really clearly, is the story of all of us. And that's the way Paul talks about him in, in Romans, so that we're all born into this world incomplete. And every parent knows that. You look at your kid and you're like, well, well, there's so much you need to learn. And yet you look at your child and realize they have this infinite value. And you know that they have to walk through the pain of life to to learn what love is. So Richard Rohr has this line where he says, he said something like, I think life is one school of love. And I go, yeah, I think that makes sense that especially if you think of love as a good free will. And, and you see then, that gets to the heart of all these arguments in Christianity around the nature of free will. And free will is so hard because it exists at the boundary of time and eternity. So just talking about it is a nightmare because you have to spend three hours defining every term when you begin to do so. Well, this is the way, maybe this helps Jason. One way I think about it, um, Paul will talk a lot about waking. So in my mind, I picture it as if I'm a little child on my father's lap and I'm dreaming a dream. And in my dream, I don't have a dad. I don't have a mom. I'm the creator of everything. I'm the creator of myself. And my dream is turning into a nightmare. But um, very soon, I'll wake up to the reality that I'm on my father's lap and I will know my father's lap for the first time to use the T.S. Eliot poem because I'll wake up and think, oh, I am so glad you're my dad. I'm so glad that I'm home. Um, or use the picture, you're my mom, mom and dad. This is this is where I belong and I, I know that place for the for the first time. That people, people think that's, that's like... Um, that's minimizing evil and our experiences in this world. And I go, well, our experiences in this world is all that our conscious mind knows, but there's something in all of us that goes, there's got, there's more, there's more than these space time relationships of cause and effect in this world. So like Solomon says, there, there is this eternity in our hearts. That's why we make back to the future movies and talk about things like truth and love and nobody knows what they are it's it's interesting to me um see i'm actually i i my road to belief in god at least at this explicit propositional level was really facilitated by um uh, a, a philosopher who is both like obscure because he's not part of academia and like super politically incorrect so that if you bring him <laughs> up people who are uh People who who like to um, impute guilt by association will definitely do that to you, but it's just a fact, and I can't pretend like I came by these ideas on my own. Yeah, um, I I am a fan of a, of a, well, the, of the philosophical work of a guy named Christopher Langan, and what he talks a lot about is how free will is beyond space and time because if there is the space time manifold, there is also which let's say is four dimensional, then there is 
a, let's say a fifth dimension or a higher dimension that is orthogonal to it. And it is one on which space and time are, 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 are generated. There is something about free will. Let, let's say if we, if we look at it, I don't know, it's, it's, it's such, a, such a dangerous thing to invoke quantum physics, especially when you have no background in science, as, as I don't. But if you, if you invoke the sort of atemporal nature of, of quantum physics, events <clears throat> are, are interdependent across uh, great swaths of time. The normal way to look at free will is is in time, but that that never works. If you, if you do like this kind of like, well, at at choice at, at at point C, um, I I had a motive which was created by a prior decision I made at point B, and then at point B, the motive according to which I made uh, that that defining decision uh, was itself the product of some motive or decision I had at time A, but then see, it, it, it kind of, it hits a wall and then it becomes this kind of deterministic domino rally as to what caused it. But imagine that that um, at, at, at choice C, the decision you made um, interdepends on some choice you made uh, at, at choice D. And then choice <laughs> D interdepends with choice C and then that gets, we look at possibilities as existing over timelines, but I have some weird sense of like how possibilities, they, they meaningfully exist as possibilities in the present moment and are also exhausted as possibilities <laughs> in, in, in the actuality yeah, so it, of the present moment. And, but that something, the, the, the free will, the, 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 what, what Langan calls the telesis, the, the, the endedness of of decisions is is almost what creates reality and reality is created you know most fundamentally by the telos of love um that it's you know you know back of and behind uh, all things like the way that you see eternity is not is not oh yeah it's like what's after the end no it's it's if you have if you have some x and not x there, there's a reduction that it's more it's more absolute or it's like if you have if you have two things then there's there's always something lower down and deeper two different things means there's always an underlying stratum of sameness that's another idea i got from langan i'm sure other people have thought of it too he was just my way into these ideas and um and you know that's i see how you understand eternity is it's 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 almost like the the underlying fundamental grammar of of linear time and all other kinds of of yeah or, or causal arrangements yeah that's where i think uh modern physics i mean you you said a lot of really wonderful things there cal and i think i understood a lot of it but that but that's where modern physics is uh so fascinating to me because i think it it forces the mind of theology that uh, ironically has been seduced by enlightenment physics <laughs> to putting everything in that chronological time framework there's this verse and i should mention this in revelation 10 it gets translated out because the translators think it's, it can't mean what it says but the angel that stands on land and sea and this is about the i think the seventh trumpet or something it's about at the the point where in the symbolism which i think is reality says we're about to switch over here the angel stands on land and sea and, and swears by heaven and earth or whatever. Then this angel looks like Jesus that Kronos will be no more. 
chronological time will be no more, which is fascinating because, you know, physicists talk about the only way they can discern the arrow of time, chronological time, is through the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy. The biblical word for that is death, that things die is the only way we can, it just doesn't make sense. So, so I think I get what you were saying about, you know, cause and effect, they all have to lie on that temporal timeline. And the illusion that I think we were all seduced by is that we are the cause of our timeline. Well, if there is an eternity and God is in that eternity, well, then that, and that timeline always ends in death, right? So it's like God's saying, okay, you can, you can dream this, this dream, but you're going to wake up to this wonderful reality that is my creation, which to me fits with the whole multiverse thing. And, uh, that Robin Williams movie, What Dreams May Come. So maybe now I'm pulling too many ideas in here. But the picture I have in my mind is like, we're all being allowed to create our own reality to some extent. And all of our bad and all of our dreams are turning into nightmares. But when we wake up to God's reality, all of the realities are unified in in one. And yet we're not slaves to the reality because this is the miraculous thing that I think the gospels are attesting to is that the creator has decided to make his home inside of each one of us. So somehow in eternity, we sit together with Jesus on the throne, creating reality. And all of our realities are in this communion because we're unified in him and our wills are free because none of us are forced. We genuinely want to, because we are in this somehow this relationship we can't fully understand with our creator which is really exactly what Jesus prays in John 17, that he prays that our relationship with God would be like his relationship with God. And that's where the, you know, the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity becomes so fascinating and everybody bangs their head against the wall because they go, well, yeah, we're talking about, we're talking about the things on the other side of the curtain that were just, that Paul said, we cannot comprehend, but we're just getting, a glimpse of, and like you said, when he ascends to the third heaven, he he's like, I, I saw things I can't put into words. But and and that's what and you the back to that word purpose. How do you say it? Say it again, Cal. I'm a speech therapist. Uh, yeah, so I am. I am quite. Uh, 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 Just ignore uh, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, pedantic about these things. Yeah, uh, yeah. Perspicuity. Yeah, the perspicuity of Scripture. Well, if if Christians say there is that Scripture is just real clear and simple, and we should always be able to understand it, I go, they're obviously not reading Scripture. The whole point, Scripture over and over again, say this is about revelation. This is not knowledge that you go, you know, you go down to the local library and figure out. This is revelation, and revelation is. Well, that's how we know persons, right? Because persons are not something I can reduce to a formula. Um, and scripture is the same way. We're getting to know God. How absurd to, to say that we should somehow be able to simply explain God. That, that, I mean, that, I think that's another, that led to anti-intellectualism anti and a whole lot of absurdities in Christianity in the last hundred years in America. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying where the, the argument is where people because at first when you said that I don't think I was tracking when you said that scripture is simple 
and easy to understand, but I think I see what you're getting at where people are dissecting it and breaking it apart. And like, we could just keep digging into it. Like, I think well, I yeah. guess in, in my head where it is simple is it's like, it's just, uh, it's just a relationship thing. It's just like, if you just, but that gets out. I mean, that just happens outside of scripture. Like you can look at right. children and you're like, Oh, children get it. <laughs> like they get yeah. how, how life works. Like it's right. Yeah. yeah they yeah. get that. It's so, yeah, so I don't know how you heard what I just said. So it's profoundly simple in that it's really all about love. So you yeah, ask yeah. a three-year-old, do you love me? And they say, yes. And you go, okay, that was simple. <laughs> but then if you say, now tell me, what is love? And how does it relate to my free will and what I'm oh, supposed yeah. to do? The three-year-old will look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? And <laughs> uh, so, but, so, it, so much I think has to do with, in scripture has to do with epistemology, you know, how you come to, to know a thing mm -hmm. and, and little children, they really don't, their whole, it's fascinating talking about little children because their whole world is animated. I remember when my kids were little, you know, we'd have to talk to the cars in the parking lot and I'd be looking around going, is someone watching this? Cause we're talking to the VW bug, calling it Herbie and asking it how it's doing. But in their mind, the whole world is, is spiritual in that sense that, and and yet in the adult mind we we're constantly killing things by reducing them to elements or you know a carbon of a spirit a car is carbon and nitrogen or, or well iron and anyway um so yeah hopefully that helps yeah. a little bit you know this is the verse i was looking at i love this verse listen to this paul this is paul says these things in the midst of you know arguments about food sacrificed to idols and stuff. And he says, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And then he writes, this knowledge puffs up the knowledge that you possess. And then he says, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So <laughs> I'd say, Adults are into that first form of knowledge and three-year-olds are into the second form of knowledge. Yeah. 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 I would completely agree. Yeah. It's like this return to childlikeness or something like that is yeah. what he's calling yeah. us back to. Um, well, and see the, the beautiful thing about that is to return to childlikeness is the death of Mises. That's the, that's the illusion that Peter Hyatt is his own creator um, and I build that over time by going to school, getting a dream, uh, degree, um, learning my field, getting a big vocabulary, all those things that I think, okay, well, that, that defines me and I have to let all that go to get back to my definition, which comes right. from the creator or my yeah, father. Yeah, if you, if you put on airs in front of your parents. Your parents are going to see right through that. And if they love you, they're going to shut it down. And the, the Jesus and Mises thing, the Jesus and Mises interpretation of Matthew 25, it, it really shattered me um, in the best possible way. Um, um, I, love, I love your interpretation of Matthew 25 so much, so, so much. I think about it like every day. Oh, right. Um, where where because it's the first time that it made these really hard sayings actually sound like they came from Jesus. Where where because on the surface of it, um, you look at Matthew 25, it's it's almost like 
And it's very interesting when you sort of link it up to its apparently corresponding judgment in Revelation, Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, um, where they're explicitly, explicitly says they're judged by their works and they're in that judgment. Matthew 25 appears to be judging people by their works. Um, and now you can put an interpretive gloss on it. Well, of course, what he really means is my father didn't pre-regenerate you, but he pre-regenerated you. And but that's probably that's not that that's a gloss. That's not yeah. the surface level of the text surface level of the text is you did enough and you did it and then and it's like really anyone who sees that should have alarm bells be going off in their mind you know uh, like oh geez. if it's a question of who did enough i know i didn't do enough um like uh jason pratt um is a kind of evangelical universalist guy and one thing he has a very cool interpretation of matthew 25 that's similar to yours where he just says look only a goat would imagine that he's that this is about sheep and goats and that he's not a goat <laughs> um and and um so you know it's like a sheep let's say or there there are no sheep and goats it's all sheep goats and a sheep goat uh, well you know you really really you should understand that that you know this is this is talking about a line that runs down in in the middle of you and the, and the beautiful sort of finale to this interpretation is that when jesus says you said it like this i'm paraphrasing but jesus says depart from me i never knew you what you, like you never knew you existed no because they never had a relationship with a lie yeah that cut me that 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 really really because that 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 to me sounds exactly like something jesus would say and yeah. it makes so much beautiful sense of the rest of, of jesus interactions with people where to everyone he's extremely you know, loving and open, except the Pharisees who are so hardened that he only has one approach with them. And he calls them sons of Satan. What? As if Satan has creative powers to rival God? No. Like you said, like Satan is the father of lies. So what he's, Jesus says, I condemn no one. And then he's condemning the Pharisees. He said, you call someone a fool, you're going to be liable to the council. And then he calls them blind fools. But the thing is, Jesus is condemning no one when he condemns their false selves. He's condemning people that, that never existed. <laughs> yeah. Jesus only negates the negation. He affirms the truth and negates only the lie. The master has this prerogative. He knows he knows you know when to hold them and when when to fold them, so to speak. Where you like, I'm an unjust steward. I I see someone, all I do is just write a check. I just forgive. But but um, you know, Jesus, he's in the position of the master, so he does both. But when you understand what he's doing, you understand, of course, he loves it. Of course, he loved Judas. This is not mm -hmm. some stupid game about sheep and goats chosen from before the beginning of, of, of time. Uh, it, this is something completely different. And, and, and depart from me, why? Because I never had a relationship with a lie. Is something that, like to me, that is just that is just pure Jesus. And when that when that connected those dots for me, it became like a central yeah. interpretive principle that I'm extremely grateful for because it's always gonna shape how i look at the gospels now well you know one thing i've discovered because i remember preaching decided to preach through matthew years ago and that's what kind of got me in a lot of trouble because i kept seeing these things but i got to that verse and i remember just being really stressed and having a bunch of people pray for me and go you know i and because i'm preaching expository messages i can't bail out everybody will know hey what happened to you but it's fascinating to me how um if you just sit with the verse and take it seriously, it sorts itself out. So, you know, when Jesus was speaking these things, and not everybody was literate, 
you couldn't come. I mean, a book was this incredibly precious thing that you went to the synagogue to hear someone read. You couldn't own one, but you would you would tell these stories and then you would just have to sit with them. And um, that's such a fascinating story, because when you put yourself in the story and you let Jesus words judge you, it does take you to this crisis. And and it seems to me scripture is doing that over and over again, where the Old Testament prophets, the whole thing takes us to this crisis where we all have to die um, or die to that, to Mises, the ego self and, and be born from above. And, and that birth is a, is a miracle and that's utterly terrifying. And yet the beautiful message of the gospel is, yeah, but the one who's in charge of the whole process loves you more than you could possibly comprehend. And, um, so with it, it's over and over again to me, scripture is like the story of Jacob, you know, wrestling with the God man at the edge of the promised land. And the God man just beats the crap out of him, blesses him basically with all things as he goes and meets his brother Esau and inherits the universe, you know? Yeah, this is, that's weird. I was like talking about that exact same thing last night about that same story, Jacob and Esau. I was saying I think this is the the, the entire struggle of, of mankind is right here because if you actually because when I brought up is like you don't you can't even it's very unclear who he's even wrestling with because like if you actually look at his story it's like he wrestled with his brother in the in the womb he takes his brother by the heel steals a blessing and then when he's wrestling with this angel in a dream he's the exact same thing happens he won't let go yeah. of the angel until he blesses yeah. him and then he's wrestling with the firstborn. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah. And then what comes out of it is he says, I've seen God's face. And then right after that, when him and Esau are reconciled, he says, I've seen your face, like I've seen God's yeah. face. And it's like yeah. that's which makes this incredible spin on the whole thing of, you know, when Paul quotes uh Joel or whatever saying, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it. And mm -hmm. you go, Whoa, there's an amazing story going on there. Utterly yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about that more too, because that just seems, uh, yeah. If you look at that in terms of firstborn and secondborn, um, and as a pattern playing out Jacob, I love but Esau, I've hated. Um, yeah. It just, uh, yeah. it continues. <laughs> it's, I yeah. And Jesus, it and yet. Jesus, well, and then when you chew on the fact that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and Adam is the secondborn, and mm -hmm. that uh, God, that did God hate Jesus on the cross? Well, in the sense that he, that Jesus suffered with us, that, that we stole, we stole his, we tried to wrestle the firstborn status, stole the birthright, and he gave us the birthright. And that somehow reveals the glory, the glory of God. Anyway, the, yeah, yeah. The, see, to me, the Bible is so, uh, is so rich, but most, the irony is that hardly anybody takes it seriously anymore and yeah the moment that i say i think god's gonna pull this thing off and redeem all creation people say oh you don't take the bible seriously and then they they shut you off and mm -hmm. it's 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 but you know but i have to keep giving that up to say okay god you're the you're telling the story you you're not in a panic um you'll mm -hmm. yeah i don't know did it freeze up Oh no, it's still Mr. gone. Okay, Mr. Hyatt might have frozen up a little bit. Still there? Did I maybe I just stopped talking? Oh, okay. I'm here, well, are you there? Um, you said yeah. You said that God is telling the story. God is not in a panic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's right. Just, so, so 
And from the beginning, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, and I say that in a very personal way because it's like you start to see some of these things, and and I'm telling my my brothers and my denomination, this is so cool. Look at all these things are they're more true than we ever imagined, and and the only thing that the old thing that I don't think works anymore is this idea that God created some people to endlessly torture them. If you just take that the scenario. The whole Bible like comes together in this beautiful way, and all these stories are filled with utterly profound and beautiful truth. Yeah, and, I, but I and then something? I get frustrated, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but, but real quick, what I was going to say is that I have to existentially, personally entrust that to God because I get so frustrated that people don't see it. Yeah. yeah. So Cal, one word that I would use to describe both Jason's understanding. <clears throat> of the Bible and yours is, is fractal. Another word, which is a little more dangerous that I would also use is psychedelic <laughs> mind revealing, disclosing the structure of consciousness, disclosing the structure of the structure whereby structure is apprehended. Something like fancy like this, quoting Jordan Peterson there a little bit, I think um, there, the fractality and what I have noted what I was noting in my conversation with Jason Pratt, which was a little bit before I kind of rediscovered you, um, uh, Jason Pratt is, is, is super awesome, by the way. Everyone should check out his, his um, under, uh, Evangelical Universalist a series of interviews that he did on YouTube. Um, but um, one thing I noticed from interacting with his work is that the Bible is fractal. Because uh, I saw the way that he kept bringing the Old Testament in to interpret the New Testament. But what, what stops us from seeing the fractality is specifically those verses that, that use the word all. If we take the word all and we say it actually means some, that is like the exact logical hinge point. Um, and that, that, so that, that stuck out to me when you said the only thing that doesn't work is this idea that God created some people for eternal destruction you know, from the word go. In other words, all doesn't mean all. All actually means some. Yeah. And but see, if you if you just let all mean all, then the Bible sort of becomes something something other than a linear uh, yeah. uh, view of things. The the I was I was listening to Sam Labins. Um, he's a he's an analytic philosopher coming from a Jewish uh, perspective, Hasidic idealism. Um, he was talking about how. Um, there's a sense in which everything exists um, in the mind of God. And in that sense, almost like a work of fiction, uh, we uh, do have free will, sort of like how Frodo has free will in Lord of the Rings. But from a more fundamental, fundamental perspective, say a perspective outside the mind of God, we don't have free will because we're just kind of products of his mind. What I thought it was interesting, but what I didn't like about it was the idea that there's a more fundamental perspective, even that like hypothetically like a view from nowhere or a, a more fundamental perspective than um uh the view that god has in his own mind which because there is there is no such and and so in other words what does it mean is god god exists where in some larger containing space some absolute background space no god exists in his own mind consciousness is self is, is so we exist in god's mind and where does god exist? god exists in god's mind so the thing is, the, 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 the universe, 
shall we say, understood as the mind of God in which we live and move and have our being, in whom we live and move and have our being, um, is like a hologram. And so you go into anything, you will travel into it as endlessly as if you were seeking the outer rim. Um, and and that I I see it coming up again and again in in your in your Romans sermons and interpretations, which to me is just such a it's such it's such a, a an alarm bell of truth. I just hear ding ding ding. Is like pay attention to this because this guy is is approaching the unapproachable limit. This guy is is going right into a mandala, basically. Yeah, um, I um, almost brought up mandala earlier when you said psychedelic. Yeah. yeah, that's how it feels sometimes. Yeah, I don't know what mandala is. It's a but... it's that weird image of like the psychedelic image of this ever unfolding flower, kind of like yeah. going back in on itself. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, well, and the, the fra- the, you know, and oh no, the but the like I said I think is is uh really fascinating about the nature of scripture when you another way to say it is in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god all things were made through him without him was anything made that was made and the word became flesh so and you know paul says i said no nothing among you but jesus christ and him crucified so the way i like to think about it is that everything gets created through jesus sustained by jesus and somehow that cross that tree in the garden is is the doorway to reality it's you know the people like jesus said so people i'm the door so people can come in and out and find pasture and so that that pattern that cross is is yeah is the that's the fractal reality that's inherent in every moment of creation and this is some people haven't had any experiences like this, so this really stresses them out when I talk this way. But where I this a lot of this the rubber hit the road, you know. So it's you can talk philosophically and go, yeah, well maybe I'm just you know smoking crack or something's a little messed up with me. But it all the rubber hit the road for me and praying for this friend of ours that was just horrifically abused. And Jesus would have us go back in prayer with her and my wife will have visions of what she goes through. And, and I just saw things that I'm like, I cannot explain that any other way than that. Jesus just did that. And it was absolutely beautiful. But in going back to this abuse over and over again, it had to do with her surrendering the memory to, to Jesus presence. And the thing that always amazed me was that it, I mean, when we would start out with a picture, I would be filled with just despair and anger at God and just horrified that he would allow such evil somehow in his creation. But then after Jesus would show up in these visions and do things, I could do nothing but worship. And then I began to realize that Jesus was always in the picture. It was that our eyes were closed to his presence. And once our eyes were open to his presence, the very same thing was filled with light and took on entirely different meaning. So when you were talking about, you know, using the word where, where is this outside the mind of God or whatever, you know, that is, that's where the place where a brain, where doesn't work anymore. But the idea that there are, that evil is this place of emptiness in the creation where God is waiting to be revealed and he is already revealed in eternity. You get the idea that well, the the thing that's changing is me. I'm opening my eyes to love, and 
the the fractal nature of the cross is so important because what is the cross well it is the most horrifying evil thing that ever happened on this surface of the earth right when when adam the pinnacle of god's creation crucifies his creator or our creator and yet what else is it it's always the very best thing that ever happened because it's the moment that the creator gave his very life himself to each one of us so that that is, is i think he's jesus said according to julian of norwich jesus said this thing to her he said he said um if i have done with the greatest of evil turned it into the greatest of good will i not do it with all things and i go there you go to me that's the practical nature of reality so we, we we've turned the death and resurrection of jesus into this weird little thing that happened and we argue about it 2000 years ago and if you get it correct then god lets you into his kingdom if you don't then it's eternal torture well, it's not this little thing. It's absolutely everything. So one thing that gives me an aneurysm is sometimes people will say, well, you're by saying what you're saying, Peter, you're minimizing the cross. And I'm just like minimizing the cross. Reality wouldn't exist without there is no there is no creation without the cross. Jason so. was struggling to make this exact series of points um, the other day. Uh, a couple of days ago, when a con Jason has regular conversations uh, with his friends, um, of whom I'm now lucky to be counted one, um, I think, I hope. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was struggling. He was at pains to make this very point. So I kind of pointed to him, like I, I heard you trying to say this yesterday. Yeah. Or, nothing yeah. Can, nothing can exist without the cross. Yeah, because it is the the yeah. fundamental pattern for all creation, and it is like I, yeah the the. The, I think the hard thing with the fractal patterns is is because uh, things are personal. And so that's where they kind of, um, we stop seeing it as a pattern because it becomes immediate. And so we want to say, oh, here it is. It's this thing. It's this moment in time. It's very, I can touch it. I, it becomes flesh. And so then, yeah. but then it, like you're saying, it, the word dies if it's not a fractal pattern. If it isn't, if it, if what you read isn't a pattern, then it just, it happened once in history and it's done and it's dead and it's not a living word anymore. And so it yeah. has to be alive. It has to be a fractal pattern. And so the Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated thing is like, it's still, um, it doesn't apply to just Jacob and Esau. Like it's, it's a pattern and it's, yeah. and I think it's about the, the, the re it is the redemption of all things. Like, I think it's about the Romans, like you were talking about, it made me think for what is there being cast away, but the reconciling of the world, but acceptance for life from the dead. It's like the, the firstborn Israel is my firstborn. And then they're committed to disobedience that God might have on, on the Gentiles, the church. And then it's like, what do you think is this is what something right. I brought up? I haven't explored it enough, but I was like, I wonder if this is what, what is so hard for Christians right now? Like, what do you think is happening again? And where people struggle so much with, right universalism because it's like what is causing you to not forgive right now like it's like you're it's uh it's it's falling into this firstborn thing and it's like you're the church has kind of repeated the same pattern israel did and it's uh and so it's bingo 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 yeah, yeah. and it's for the reconciling of the world i think yeah, yeah.
Yeah, it's it's kind of shocking. But and then Cal, you said something about the spiral, and to me, I see the spiral around the cross. Like that's like the. In fact, I remember at my old church, this were the when people have visions, it's fascinating to me. And you know, people make stuff up, and you can kind of tell. But this friend of mine had this vision about during service and I preached a message and blood came out, filled the whole room and the blood burned away uh, certain people, purified people, whatever. And then the whole thing drained through one little hole in the bottom of the sanctuary and suddenly came out the other side and Jesus and God were standing there and Jesus had a map and he folded it up, put it in his pocket and said, okay, we did it or something like that. And I, I, and I probably butchered that, but the picture in my mind is, yeah, that swirl is like, everything has to do with that, with that tree. And it's all swirling uh, to that, to that tree. And whatever refuses to go to that tree refuses to go to judgment. And the judgment is creation. That's good. I like that. Yeah, take up your cross. Like everybody's got to get. Everybody has their own cross. I just listened to the last sermon I listened to you by was the uh, the. It was Romans. I think Romans twelve. Uh, I beseech you by the mercy of God, present your living sacrifices. And it reminded yeah. me of um, of the of the bride of Christ because this, like when I read this a long time ago, it just kind of stuck out in my head. And it took a long time. Like like you said, you got to sit with these ideas and actually sit with the scripture for a long time. But it's uh, I think in Ephesians where God said he's going to present his bride blameless and spotless. And I'm just like, yeah. that same language is used for the lamb going to the slaughter. It's like the same, like he's, he, he forgives you so you can forgive others. Like that's yeah. the, that's the whole purpose of it. It's like he, he, in forgiving you, he makes you spotless and blameless. So you can go pick up your cross and, and be a so you, so he he really is the perfect image of the invisible god and he's got scars in his hands and his feet that that make your head spin because he got those scars in space and time i i, I don't know They're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how how is it that eternity can spiral around a temporal event how can it be not really an abstract pattern but also a man crucified on wood and this gets into something like Langan has weird ideas. He talks about how from within the perspective of God's mind, not some absolute backdrop, God is self-creative. Man is like sort of the anthropic principle, like the, the self-understanding of God. And Jesus, you know, we would say Jesus is, um, you know, ma mankind. Well, why, is God, why is God a man? Because man is like the pupil of the self-seeing eye that is God. And, and, <laughs> this is like it's just so it's 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 trippy because because it can't be nearly abstract it has to be the universal and the particular the abstract and the specific always bound into one like that yeah. like that's why the you know, jesus is is a meeting of god and man heaven and earth the universal and the particular and that's why he is the that that's why he is what eternity spirals around and that's why um Paul says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? You can't actually say, as I think Richard Dwarf somewhat problematically does, like Jesus is not Jesus is not the Christ or Jesus is not Christ. Um uh, you know, because actually he kind of is, but it, it's 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 well not kind of, he is. And so like that, yeah. that that's a very that's that's the really the part where it's a mystery and it's a it's a stumbling block. 
Yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think maybe where what he's trying to get at, if I'm going to be generous to him making that statement, is probably yeah, something indeed, of, indeed. A, of um, probably what he's trying to say is like the line, I think the line gets fuzzy with theosis and when the two become one. And so it's like, like when, when, when Jesus actually takes his bride, it's like, then what's happening exactly? You know, it's like, uh, and maybe that's what Richard War is getting at. Well, what you think? It's, no? it's, it's fair to say that the human nature of Christ is not the divine nature of Christ. Analytically, they're separate, even if functionally or even more yeah, deep, yeah. more deeply than that, they're 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 unified. There's always been this uh, probably somewhat pointless debate about whether Jesus has two wills or one. Um, yeah, I yeah. use an analogy of the hemispheres of your brain. It's like analytically they're they're distinct, and if you cut the corpus callosum, they would behave as distinct persons, but functionally they're one, and they the experiences of one integrated consciousness. Yeah. I use that as an analogy. I don't know how how accurately that actually maps on, but but you know he would be right to say that. Look, conceptually at least, the human nature of Christ is not the divine nature. Uh, I think that would be a, a fair parsing of what he said. I don't okay. necessarily yeah. bash talking. But I just like, yeah, when you say Jesus is not the Christ or something like that, which a lot of New Age people do, is like I see. Christ oh, consciousness, I see the man Jesus is just an ascended master who ascended to Christ consciousness. But, you know, I, I think that that's not really... I'm catching up. Sorry, it took me a little bit. Yeah, so, well, it's interesting you say that because I, I just got the universal christ or whatever by roar and started reading and really got frustrated with the way he was talking about jesus and christ and i like richard roar but it seemed to me yeah there's the the point in scripture is the christ means the one god anoints that's the king or whatever like it's a way of saying this is the guy and what you were saying about the fractal nature of reality i think has a whole lot to to do with that like well the wonder of the gospel is that the guy is also this flesh and blood dude walking around eating fish with his disciples and that does something i think well it, it does something so profound to maybe your eschatology or your view of reality in that every little thing now becomes every it, when i think richard Rohr would say this the, the way you do the little thing is also the way you do the big thing the way you do the big thing is the way you do the little thing and the difference between little and big is all an illusion because it's it's fractal right so um i can go to the cross in a conversation with my daughter this afternoon but and then that gets back then to matthew 25 right is and the judgment that the judgment is kind of happening all the time it's around me and anyway you can that's spin really off good. forever talking about that i guess no that's really good yeah the judgment is happening all the time yeah because it's spoke, it's 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 just yeah, it's like the word is spoken and it's it's a heavenly principle, not an earthly principle. So well, and I awesome. I think, yeah, and I think that's the only way to make sense out of the crazy things Jesus says in the Gospel of John. You know, when you read the Gospel of John, you're like, whoa, what the heck happened to Jesus? He he became a Buddhist or something. That's like that cartoon. What was that? Well, it was in South Park. God's a Buddhist. Anyway, but that's a whole. Other, but anyway, the. I think it's because my theory is I think I think John that wrote the Gospels is the one that had the revelation. He wrote the gospel after he had the revelation. And he remembered all these things Jesus said that the other guys would just be like, yeah, whatever. I you know, it didn't even compute. But what Jesus says about judgment is 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 really just so fascinating that he judges no one and yes, judgment is true. And then he talks like he is the judgment and 
the judgment, you know, this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light. And now is the judgment of the world. And you go, okay, we are reduced judgment to this weird thing on a map that hangs on in a pastor's office. Everybody tries to figure out when it's coming. And John's talking like, it's just here all it's the light in this room right now is the, is the judgment. And I think that's the fascinating nature of the death and resurrection of Jesus existing at the boundary of the sixth and the seventh day existing at the boundary of chronological time and the age to come, which you could say it's the ageless age or the age full age, or it's the age when time doesn't work the same way anymore. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's definitely food for thought. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to grapple with those things in your mind. And I see why it's hard for, hard for a lot of people to get it. Cause I mean, it's like I said, with, with me and even seeing time linearly, it's been, it feels like it's been a struggle to just like break down walls and categories to be able to, see things fractally and to see like the eternal nature of things and how yeah yeah man looks at the outward appearance but god looks at the heart like god looks at the spirit of the matter the very core of like everything or yeah and it's hard to it's hard to grab that perspective um well and and that's where the the view of scripture's revelation is so important because i I think the thing that happened with me is because God tricked me into being a pastor and preaching expository sermons. I just had to deal with the text every time going and, you know, and and saying, is this whole thing nuts? Because it appears to contradict itself or is my view of reality nuts? And once I think, okay, I can't hang on to space time the way I used to, but what I need to hang on to is the meaning of the text. Well, then everything pops into place. And I think that's part of why so much of scripture is story. You know, I, yeah. I don't mean to bash anyone, but I, I spent, gosh, I think I read most of the Quran one year on my sabbatical and it's, it's kind of all laws and just do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And in scripture, the law exists like it does in, in the inner sanctuary in the temple. It exists in the context of mercy. So the tables of the law, you remember on stone, were placed under the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. So the law is surrounded by grace. In other words, the law is part of the story. Uh, the law isn't the big thing with the story, the small thing. The story is the big thing. And the law is, is part of the revealing of the story. And yeah. But stories get at persons. And so, you know, like the story of the sheep and the goats, how, how is no one can really explain the space-time dynamics of that story. And, and yet the story draws you into those places of mystery, like a relationship with a person does that um, it was just, it just makes everything alive and beautiful and living. And there's room for, there's room for everybody. There's in that grand story. Yeah. I like to think about, the image of God, um, where it's like, uh, there's a beautiful painting by William Blake. It's called um, a God Judging Adam. And then uh, a, a Texas writer named uh, Matt, oh, somebody, I can't remember his name. He captioned it. He said, he said, Adam is God having, having displaced himself from himself. So God is looking at Adam and seeing God. 
And then in the New Testament, somewhere in Paul's letters, it talks about we look at God and we see our true selves, or we look at ourselves and we see God, something like this. And so the thing is, as God, as God looks at his creation and sees God, obviously he's also seeing the creation, but he's, he's, he's seeing himself. And then, and then we look at God and we obviously, you know, no man has seen God at any time, but to the extent that we're capable, we see God, but we also see our true selves. So the image of God is something interdependent. It's something like the overlap, which is also interestingly what, what, what Jesus is. And um, it's like, it's a drawstring effect. Uh, when you have two mirrors, the image of God is a reflection, a mutual reflection of God and his creation. And what that is, is like this infinite, like fractal hall of mirrors. Um, and that's what I think of as, as the, the, the image of God. In other words, what is it? Where's the image? It's like, it's that thing. Um, but, but um, you know, there was a beautiful line that you said, I'm sorry if I'm a little bit too lateral and associated here. That's just the way that I, I naturally think. Um, there was a beautiful line that you said in a couple of your interviews or just one. And it's, it was like Kabbalistic to me almost. And I was wondering if you could clarify or expand on it. You talked about like the original breath of God in adam being trapped in the depths of the temple yeah can you yeah can you clarify that what what that what that is i that that that, that line has haunted me i have not fully understood what you meant by that yeah so well the and then the story of scripture so and it often gets translated out because people don't see the story it's not that the translators are trying to be mean or something but, but, but there's a, that line in uh, romans 8 that this the spirit is life and then if you think that each one of us is this thing called a soul which is somehow spirit breathed into dust the spirit comes from god and then you remember that Jesus says that we are the temple. So each one of us is like a temple and then together we're the temple. And what fascinates, you know, I always thought all this stuff about the temple was just nuts. I'm like, I don't even know why people read this stuff. But then when I began to realize, oh, wait a minute, the temple is us. So even in the Old Testament, when they're talking, God has them set up the tabernacle that then becomes a temple. He's telling them about themselves. And in the depths of their being, is uh the inner sanctuary which the book of hebrews says is like the presence of the age to come the outer courts or the ages of this world and everything is about getting back to that inner space and that inner space is looks remarkably like the garden of eden so to get back into it you have to go past the the altar of fire the, and you have to go back past the sword of the priests and inside is the ark of the covenant where um, the blood of sacrifice is placed on top of the mercy seat that contains the the law and god manifests between the cherubim like the cherubim that guarded the way to the to the garden so and if you take that picture then and and you and and god is telling the israelites about themselves and you know we find this out later god's never in doesn't seem to be any sort of panic to reveal things to people too early it seems but he's saying, well, there, there, I exist in the depths of your own being, but you're exiled from yourself. And so we're telling the story of how you come back to yourself. And when Jesus, of course, when Jesus uh, died, he, you know, scripture talks about his flesh being the veil. 
and the curtain rips in the temple as if, okay, now the way is made so that you can come home to your creator, which is also coming home to yourself because you are, you know, the, the image of your creator. Um, and then, oh gosh, I was, oh, that, so this is what it has to do with breath. So the, the breath in the beginning, God breathes into the Adam and Adam, um, well, he doesn't recognize God. It's like there's, he hangs on to the life, which is also the picture of when we go to the cross and we take the life of Jesus, we hang on to it to ourselves. So when we come to the communion table, it's like we're confessing that. Yes, I just raped God and now I'm cannibalizing him and I'm eating him. Well, what what really fascinated me one day was just looking at all the gospels and all four gospels make a big deal of this. And this is what gets translated out. And that is that on the tree in the garden, the ultimate Adam, Jesus is the ultimate Adam or the perfect Adam. He goes to the tree and the last thing he does is surrender his breath. He, so he'll say, you know, in one place, he'll say, I surrender my spirit or he'll say he breathed his last or whatever. And, I just remember I looked throughout all the Old Testament and that's really the only place that any Adam is ever said to consciously surrender the spirit, which started me thinking like, okay, and all this stuff that, that Jesus talks about, you got to lose your soul to find it. And that gets complicated because of language issues, but the life in the new Testament is indestructible. That's the way Hebrews talks about it. So a soul can die, the container for the life can die, but when the container dies, then the life goes back to the one who gave it, according to Solomon. That's the picture in the scripture. So the picture that emerges in scripture is that every one of us is like a little child that gets angry and holds their breath. I go, I'll get you. And you just hold your breath. And um, Jesus is the first one to surrender the breath and we hold our breath because we're terrified that about losing our lives. But lo and behold, we have a father who is constantly ready to give us more life. And life is this communion or life is this flow. Life is a dynamic thing. It's the river of life. And so you could think of it like a blood clot too, because the breath is in the blood. And if I hang on to my life in fear and shame, well, the life the life dies in the sense that it's like Jesus in the tomb. And yet the beautiful truth is, well, that God brings that life back. So I, I think a good, I think what scripture is really saying is that anytime I love, anytime I believe the truth, anytime I trust in the light, well, that's actually God rising from the dead in me. And when I enter into life, um, then the life is this communion of life is this is great dance. So C.S. Lewis did a great job of, I think, picturing all of this. It, the life is like the, the life is the movement within the Trinity. Bernardo Castrop, I don't know if you know who that is, but I just saw some of his stuff on, um, online, but he had this, when I started to read one of his books, but he said, he said, I think a person is like a, a dissociated dissociative identity disorder that, that uh of god so <laughs> it's like uh we've forgotten who we are and now all of that gets really trippy and i go well I, at best i can 
the closest I can get to what I think scripture is saying is when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then you go, okay, so who's talking Paul that, you know, that you get up against the, the edge there. But I think that's what I mean. We're the, we're the temple, but the temple becomes a dead temple because we've been exiled from ourselves. The curtain's shut. It's this stone temple that we build. And when we come to Christ, the curtain rips and Lo and behold, the, the temple become a living temple as the old stone one is swept away and we become the very body of Christ. And that temple is not about excluding. That temple includes other temples and we all become this amazing temple, but it's defined from the inside out rather than the outside in. It's defined by the free will that that is buried in the depths of the temple comes out and connects with all the other free wills. And anyway, that's the picture of this. So in the Roman series, I use the 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 story of the iron diet because I'm going, <laughs> that just works for me. It's all these body parts coming together and being unified in this one life, which is the life of Christ, which is then the the Ephesians 1.10, which theologians, you know, then say, well, that's the recapitulation theory of the atonement. But it's just what Paul says is that everything gets unified under this one, this the one headship of of Christ, and and then the temple is, well, the pictures just keep going on and on. But the temple is like the heart pumping the blood throughout the body, and the brain is the the logic that appears in all the cells. Lo and behold, um, I am, I'm a part of. I'm a part of God the way my thumb is a part of Peter Hyatt or whatever. And w where one begins and the other ends, I don't know how to, I don't know how to define that. So I, I don't know if that, that's what I, that's what I meant by that. Yeah. So we preached through the revelation um, a couple of years ago. I did a whole bunch of images and things. Cause I think the same story keeps showing up through all of them and Satan's temptation is to turn me into a blood clot or to turn me into an amoeba instead part of a body is to turn me into this isolated thing and yet the wonderful truth is that the seed of god is down within me and um it, it will it, it can't be destroyed that that was that's i mean that's a perfect expression of, of what i was sensing um as, as the fractality in, in your understanding of these things. Very significant to me um, is the fact that you talk about, you know, my friend Luke talks about how, because he's, he's Orthodox, and then one of the lines in the liturgy is that Jesus is the only existent one. The Kabbalists, I learned from Wikipedia, believe that on some primary level of reality, only God exists. God has the only free will. That that's a point that you keep mentioning a lot. I I am not able of myself to save myself. Saving myself is dying to myself. Only God in when I die to myself, it can only be Christ in me that lets me die to myself. Like in other words, death to self is the real doing, non-doing. 
And that is specifically the overlap of your will and God's, where you desire what God desires, God desires what you desire. It's that it's those self-reflecting mirrors again, which actually is the dynamic that creates reality or which is reality. Yeah. And we're just through the Bible trying to develop the vocabulary to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and um, the so that that the the overlap of your will and God, which is death to self, it's 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 like. God isn't over there. God, God, and you, you try to understand, here's me, here's God, it's me plus, but me plus God, it's like, it's like, I don't, I don't know where God ends and I begin. It's, God is, you know, the devil is the scatterer. God is the unifier. Um, yeah. uh, but um, uh, it, 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 do, it, do, it does get tricky because, you know, what, what he means for evil god god uses for good um uh in the lord of the rings morgoth tries to play out of tune in the symphony or the silmarillion, silmarillion rather yeah and god right. uses the discordant notes to create an even greater harmony yes the devil yeah. competes yeah. with god god has no competition and right. but so god is always like this this meta like you know one step um uh, farther up farther in the spiral yeah but um uh yeah, it, it it's um tremendous. Um, I really I really like the. Um, I mean, again, for me, Jesus and Mises is as silly as that sounds, and you must have you know seen uh, re more reactions to it than I have. Um, but uh, that's for me where it just it just keeps coming back to. Um, and the the indwelling of God is so beautifully and strangely. That's what I love is the strangeness of 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 your yeah. the, the 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 laterality, the sidewaysness of of your understanding of these things, um, which is yeah, I don't know. It's just tremendous, tremendous, tremendous um, explanation. I'm gonna have to listen to that again a number of times. Yeah, it's really yeah, hard to. Well... Sorry, go ahead. Oh no! I just so thanks. I'm ex excited to hear you. That's great to hear you say that because yeah, I think it's pretty fascinating, and the gears in my head start to smoke. Uh, definitely at that at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like the the self reflecting image uh, too of the that you bring up, Cal. And I think it take, took me a little bit to. Um, to like click or something but i think it's the uh well, like god becomes it's like through creation he creates through love and then through creation being created through love he it's like god is continually becoming more like it's just he's through his creation and through uh you plus god equals god it's like god becomes more god and more god and more god because love just becomes more and more it's like through this pattern of the the fallen redemption love just continually grows and it's this i don't yeah, know how to describe what, it it is like a spiral that's what c.s lewis describes as the great dance which is how he describes trinity and that we yeah. then enter that dance and so and so and all the becoming is all existence because becoming is part of the temporal reality but i think we get practical about all this i go well, the, the I think the the biblical word for all of this is worship, which is what 
you know, is the revelation kind of everything ends with everything worshiping God and becoming who they are. But if I think about that image, like if I if I try to become Peter Hyatt, if I go there, I got to turn Peter Hyatt into something. Well, I turn him into nothing. I turn him into an abomination. But if I worship God, then I lose myself in worship and discover who I am because I'm his image. I'm now I'm looking in the mirror that is my creator and I see myself as in the apple as the apple of his eye, the reflection in his eye. And he sees somehow himself in me because he made me as his image. I have a question then, because this is and this is something I I because I was trying to read through Genesis right before we got on here. Um so I hadn't thought of this before. And then I sent it in our little group text and Luke Thompson was like, have you never read such and such? I'm like, of course I haven't read anything. But so in the, in the Genesis story, in the garden of Eden, um, when it, he, it says God did not cause it to rain on the earth, but a mist went up from the ground. And then yeah. I looked that word up mist and it said like, it's like a veil, a covering, like a cloud. And it's a exaltation was the word it used. Is that kind of similar to what you're talking about? Like it's worship and then your is own identity. The somewhat, yeah, the glory cloud, like somehow when oh, you're when the worship, yeah. when the worship is going up from the earth, it's like the covering is the identity is veiled or something. I don't know. It's and it's uh, the it's covered in the glory or something like that. Yeah, I never understood that passage. So that's a fascinating thought because it, I mean, when you get to the end, the garden has become a city and absolutely everything worships and we were known as we know as we're known. So, yeah, I don't know. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, because I never thought of it before because it just seems strange to me. It never did until today. But I was like, why is that? Because we always get the water from heaven, like the rain always comes down and we're always getting it. But in this, it's like the, the mist back. is going yeah, up. Going yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think there are so many things in scripture that I used to think, well, it probably doesn't mean anything. And now I think <laughs> it probably all means something utterly fascinating. I just can't, I don't see it yet. My finger on it. it the yeah. thing is, you guys have such a different experience from me. Somehow you were always in the faith. And I was raised Hare Krishna, but I was, I had a somewhat fundamentalist understanding of things. And for me, that at the age of 16, when I went to first, first, the first time I went to public school, all my fundamentalist Hare Krishna ideas didn't survive contact with the kind of one dimensional, uh, like, reading of science and evolution that that I, you know, really tried to grapple with, um, as I as I got into public school. And so I was an atheist for 12 or 14 years, almost depending on how you how you count it. And so for me, like during that time, Throughout my life, I always managed to define myself as not Christian, Hare Krishna. You know, that's that's not Christian. Um, and then atheist is is not you know, Christian. What was always what I wasn't. And and the last thing I ever expected the Bible to do was make sense. The last thing I ever expected to be was Christian. It, it made as about as much sense. It made us. It, it made about as much sense to me as the idea of becoming Muslim might make to you guys. Like. Yeah, and and um and and but the 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 weird thing that I discovered is that yes, it's not it's not that like all oh, parts of it make sense, parts of it don't. It's like no, every part of it makes more sense than you will ever uh, plumb the depths of because it was what it what it's describing is fractal muriology. It's um the the part is the whole, 
and then you look into the part of that hole and then it's the hole again um it's a it's a it's a hologram um and uh it it is so psychedelic in the sense of revealing the true nature of reality which is mind and god is the langan says that ultimate reality is 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 a mind um and and god is the answer we give in uh response to the question of who's mind and so you know that's really what the bible is doing and it's it's so it's so um really chaotic uh, almost and and you know mind expanding when you when you figure out that that's what it is doing um and then you're really just white knuckling uh the <laughs> the, the the steering wheel at that point because it's it's just um it's such a ride and it takes you way 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 up to the limits of your of your conceptualization um yeah. i want to maybe even riff on something here like something that's been occurring to me so much like because as a because what i was during my atheist years was a self-styled philosopher just an amateur philosopher i thought about questions like the the youth of dilemma or like is what's good good because god likes it or does god like what's good because it's good what where, where is the where is the anteriority here like and so uh i came to this like in genesis it said god creates in his image and then pronounces it good it 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 seemed at some point things at some the answer to this question at some point seemed to settle for me on this idea that um we choose okay so like from your perspective it's like you're self-containing like like this is a big theme of language it's like ultimate reality is self-containing everything in it is self-containing in the same way in other words to you you're all that exists almost um and and um you so in other words like wittgenstein used to say like the limits of my language are the limits of my world where there, there's some way some way where it's like yourself on one level is a surface your surface self is like something delimited from what you experience as the world on another level self is a word you can give to like the world in the widest sense everything that you experience but see then that would really be self where self and the world coincide in other words that's really another way of speaking about god god is is almost like sort of the the limit i'm not i'm not reducing god to this but from this perspective god is almost like the limit of all the possible transformations that could be operated upon the self and um and so the the, the thing is that with like what we seek in everything is the image both of is the image of ourselves uh which is also like the image of the infinite because 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 we are infinite not in the sense of having infinite power or having infinite lifespans in the material sense but in the sense of if i try to say what i am i'm always more than that um and 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 um and and so um we we what is good to us is good to us because it answers this internal image that we have which is not just an image of ourselves it's actually the image of the self where the self coincides with this world which is really the image of god it's like the image of god slash the self self slash god kind of and um and and so the answer to to to, to, to why do we choose what we choose 
um, it, it, to me, it comes down to it like it, it is that the, the answer is that what seems good to us answers this internal image that 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 we have. We're seeking God, God in everything, basically. We're, we're like we're like um, we're 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 infinite beings seeking um, um, the everything that we deem good is like an image of the infinite. And one way to see that is like whatever seems good to us seems good in virtue of transcending limits. And that means it's a pattern of integration. Integration is always of, of differentiated parts and differentiation always nestles within more fundamental integration. So in that way, that's also a fractal image of the infinite. Whatever transcends limits is an, is an integration of differentiated parts. And whatever we see as good is something which is, it brings about harmony through the transcending of limits. It says four things about God in scripture. God is peace, God is spirit, God is light, God is love. And the God is peace part is very interesting. It's not necessarily actually a straightforward equation of God with peace. It's something in like in Judges or uh, something like that where Gideon builds an altar to God and it's Jehovah Shalom. And it, it, it can mean God is peace, but it doesn't have to mean that. But if you understand God as integration and harmony, but he's really specifically this, this he's, he's what Hegel would call the identity of identity and difference. He's, he's the harmony of harmony and disharmony. Um, uh, when, you, when you understand that, um, like that, that answers the question of like, why do we seek what we seek and why is what is good to us good? Um, and, and again, it's like, it's, it's um you know this this infinite approach towards some horizon you know that like for example david bentley hart writes very well about and yeah, uh, i don't know why, like, why i was just i was thinking david bentley hart while you were talking and he <laughs> said but and he, and he talks about how that that's the way the church fathers talked about human nature and that we were made for the good and so we, we seek we seek the good and god is the god is the good and you're in the image of God, who is love. Yeah. And anything yeah. anything that is that is not love is 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 sin necessarily. It is death because it negates your identity. But the only like George McDonald wise here, like sort of the only the only self that can be that can die is a false self. The only identity that can be negated is a false identity. Um, and love is the affirmation of your your true identity. Death is is the negation of a false identity. Langan speaks so interestingly of reality as a continuum of identities, where God is the identity of the identity. You know, this is where it's all coming down <laughs> yeah. to. Well, it's, it's it, and it, it all kind of it all sort of um, to me I'm like yeah, it sounds to me like First Corinthians fifteen when yes. Paul says, and so God will be all in all, and you're like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's all yeah. God so, in God through God to God by yeah. God for God. Yeah. Uh, within and, then, God. and then you have the 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 incredible mystery of evil, because somehow we encounter the not God in evil, and yet it doesn't exist, and yet we ex you know so yeah that's that makes that'll give you a headache that's for sure gives me a headache but 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 and yet but on the other side of it is this beautiful news that. Oh wow, God really is good. That's not a God is good and goodness is God and being prepared for everything that I could possibly ever want more than I can even begin to understand right now. So this whole thing really is good news. Yeah. So I get I need to probably get going here in a minute, but yeah. um this 
<laughs> this is a great, I love this conversation I, and I'm learning a lot. So thanks for, Oh, thank yeah. So same I, here. I don't know, but yeah. I'm yeah. learning a lot from you guys too. This is great. I love this. Well, I thought we we had it. We could have an interesting sort of triangulation. Again, integration is the is the integration of differentiated parts. The body is an integration of differentiated parts. This member does this, and the yeah. other member does that. And and you know, um, it's kind of like um, this is a little bit too simplistic. But 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 Jason is is, and I, unfortunately, I didn't really give him enough space to to speak in this this conversation I, I fear but you know jason is very good at the, the symbolic the high level the integration and then you i don't even know how to categorize you to be honest like it it's because it, it's, it's just so it's so it's so mind-bending really like i'm i'm about 14 sermons into romans uh and that's just i i really love just the the level of the the, the degree to which you do repeat yourself and then also the degree to which it's different it's just so it's so transformative for me um, because it's really, I was praying for a long time to really, how do I understand scripture? What does it really mean? How do I really read it? And this is sort of this is really answering the question to me in a, in a, in a clear way. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm just really honored and, and, and tremendously um, pleased that, that you gave of your time uh, to, to talk to us this morning um because because i mean like to me it's like you are like a celebrity like <laughs> the, not to embarrass you or anything but but um uh well I, you're I, honoring I, me <laughs> so thank you well thank you so much yes, thank you yeah yeah so it's it's great to, i mean i love talking with you because it you're thinking down some fascinating paths that you know set off the little lights in my head going oh yeah that's like this verse or that verse or, what i so can do hopefully is we'll talk reasoning. again oh yeah well yeah like what i can do is like reason very closely be very linear and to to to, to show where linearity necessarily terminates in non-linearity like yeah you just you start with the premises and if you have this this and this and that means this and then you kind of explodes into into something new and, and 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 unexpected so i i can i can make things pretty explicit um but you know i i need guidance for the the higher level symbolic um uh, uh understanding <laughs> i can do the differentiation the integration is, is sort of what i need help with and it's what i get from you guys so oh well cool well thanks for thanks for the conversation and it's great to meet you jason so yeah it was great to um, meet you as well hopefully we'll talk more yeah, that would be okay. great. I would love that. You have a good day. It was, it was All good. right. You, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.